0: Let's open our Bibles. It's been two months since we've been in the Gospel of John, one of my favorite chapters, John chapter 9. By the way, you get the most out of Sunday morning if you read ahead. Next week we'll be in chapter 10, then 11. Verse 1 says, Now Jesus passed by. He saw a man who was blind from birth. And there's going to be a lot of redundancies on this. Uh, his parents are going to say he was blind from birth. Verse 32 Uh, The religious leaders are going to say it has never been in the history of the world that anybody's ever been healed who was blind from birth. So John wants us to know this man is not only blind, he's blind from birth. And his disciples asked this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered and said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work, and as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with his saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. Is that where we get the saying, here's mud in your eye? I don't know, but it probably is. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sin, and he went and he washed, and he came back seeing Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes open? And he said to him, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I washed. And I went and I received my sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. And they brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes. That was breaking their laws of the Sabbath. He was working. And the Pharisees also asked him again how he received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man's not from God. Because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they go to his parents. And they asked his parents, is this your son? How are his eyes open? They said, look, he's of age. He was born blind. You go ask him. And uh, love these verses how it ends. Verse 24. They said, give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner. The blind man said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, I was blind, and now I can see. Every time I read John 9, I think of this prominent atheist who would debate Christians at very large events. And one day off the record, this atheist said, you know, I don't understand these Christian debaters. He said they have wonderful arguments about God and Jesus and faith. And he said the problem is they always debate us on our terms. They always use logic and talk about philosophy and academic terms. That's all wonderful. He said, I'm still waiting for the one Christian leader to stand up and say, this was the condition of my life before Jesus, and now that Jesus has come in my life, I have radically had a transformation. He said, the day they do that, they actually might win one of these things. And what that atheist is saying it's very hard to argue with someone who has an experience. Very difficult. Um, this blind man has an experience, has maybe one of the most profound experiences of all time. He has a was condition and a now condition. I was blind, blind from birth, begging, the lowest rung of society. Everyone knew he was a beggar, probably non-religious, or doesn't really know who Jesus is. And now he can see. Can you imagine that? for the first time seeing clouds and sunsets and people. He has this testimony, I was blind and now I can see. And when I read it, I chuckle, I said, I wonder if this guy knows, he doesn't even know what the church is, but I wonder if he knows that believers are going to sing this song, the predominant song, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that God would save a wretch like me, I was lost and now I'm found, I was blind. And now I see. One of the most profound songs of the Christian faith goes back to this man. And, and here's what I want to share this morning. We all share in his story. Everyone in this room fits one or two categories. The first category is my category. Uh, I'm like this man. I was spiritually blind. Now, I was raised in a Christian home, I went to church on Sunday, I went to 12 years of religious school, but I was blind. I really was. Uh, I don't really remember what I knew. I could probably name a few disciples. I'm not even sure I knew Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I had never read the Bible. I would see John 3-16 at football games, like the guy holding the sign up. I wasn't sure what it was. The only thing I can remember from my childhood was a church uh, that had a sign, John 3-3, unless a man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. And I never even remembered seeing that sign until someone shared with me about who Jesus Christ was. So, so I'm the person who had a radical experience with God and then learned everything later. I'm like the blind man. So everything I teach you about the Bible and Jesus and life and faith and theology, I learned that post my conversion. Now, you might be in the second category Second category is where you grow up and maybe you know the scriptures and maybe you have some intellectual prowess and and you've read history and you understand some of the things. You were raised a Christian. Maybe the gospel was all around you and then you have an experience with God. I think the person who fits the second category as the best is Josh McDowell. Now before Lee Strobel writes The Case for Christ and like seven other books, the standard bearer of apologetics was evidence that demands a verdict. And uh, Josh McDowell wrote that book. He was actually being pestered by Christians. And he really couldn't stand them. And he began to investigate Christianity to disprove it. And I think most of you know the story. In his disproving of Christianity, he found out it to be true. The resurrection, Jesus, the Bible. And again, that, that book is a standard bearer. But here's the backstory. And Josh has been with us twice. He has this talk called My Dad Was the Town Drunk he talks about how he was embarrassed by his father and the way he was raised. He had daddy issues. And and he goes on this intellectual journey. And he finds out all these truths about Christ. But here's what Josh will tell you. No one is ever reasoned into faith in Christianity or Jesus. No one can be argued in the kingdom. Look, I've tried it. You've tried it, right? I've badgered people. I've badgered relatives. I've tried to argue. It doesn't work. At the end of the day, it's faith. The Bible says we are saved by grace. It's through faith. It's not of works. It's a gift from God. God's involved. The Holy Spirit comes and he softens a heart, and that's where faith comes from. And Josh McDowell will tell you, whatever you believe in your mind has to go 18 inches to your heart. And so you're either in one or two categories. You either had an experience with God and learned knowledge later, or you had knowledge and then later you had an experience with God. Uh, We've been through John long enough to know there's a reason why John is selecting these miracles. There's a reason why he's remembering these. He's already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's already familiar with those healings and those stories. And he's reaching back and he's remembering certain things about Jesus, not because necessarily the healing, that was profound, but something beyond the healing. There's a a message here beyond a man who is blind now seeing. And I I feel like I understand it now because the word sin is used nine times in this chapter. Somehow there's a correlation between sin, blindness, and sight. And so that's what we're going to let develop as we go through it. Uh, The first mention of sin is right in verse 1. The disciples say, Lord, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind. Can you imagine all the questions they must have peppered Jesus with? You know, when I became a new Christian, my, my friends and my family would ask me all kinds of questions. Like, do horses go to heaven? Do dogs go to heaven? And like these crazy questions. And when we go to Israel, my Jewish guy, Daniel, he's so excited at the beginning. And by the end of the trip, he's been peppered with like a thousand questions. He can't wait till the trip's over. Like, we'll be looking out the window at Banana groves, and he's telling us about agriculture, and somebody will yell from the back of the bus, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Like, oh my gosh, like, come on, guys, you're embarrassing me. But um, this is a great question. This is a question I would have asked. This is a question we ask at every funeral, at every national disaster. Lord, this man is blind. Why? Now, they were Jewish boys. They knew the scriptures. They knew enough to think that every disability, their worldview was, this wasn't the world God created. This, this wasn't meant to be. And they understood Genesis 3, the fall, right? This isn't God's world, but because of sin, the world looks this way. And so they asked, they asked Jesus, and it's educated, you know, who sinned? This is a product of sin. We understand, was it the man or was it his parents? Now, you're probably looking and saying, well, how could the man sin? Can we sin in our mother's womb? Like, are these guys really the apostles or are they the apostles, right? Like, this is strange. Well, one thing they're not talking about is reincarnation. Now, I'm going to say this, and some of you are going to be mad at me. Reincarnation is stupid, all right? Now, 20 years ago, as a young pastor, I would say things like that because I was just naive and brusque, and I'd say, Reincarnation's stupid. Now I plan to say it. Reincarnation is stupid. Here's why. I'm not putting down what anybody believes. But I, I want to appeal to your sense of common logic. Most people don't know why we're here to begin with. So now you're going to talk about multiple lives. Like we don't even know why we're here. Now we're going to talk about how we've been here a bunch of times. It's called extending the logic. It's like when you turn on National Geographic or Smithsonian Channel, and they say, oh, here's how we got here. Aliens seeded us. People are like, oh, that sounds really good. Aliens seeded us. No, it's it's stupid. You know why it's stupid? We don't know how we got here. So if you believe aliens seeded us, how did they get there? You're extending the logic. It makes no sense. They did not believe in reincarnation. No one should believe in reincarnation. What they believed came from Genesis, when uh, Jacob and Esau were in their mother's womb. Two nations were fighting there. And Esau was the oldest, he was the heir, he was the firstborn, and Jacob grabs on his heel, Jacob's striving, that's why his name means heel catcher. And so they believed you could actually sin in your mother's womb, and then the parents sinning is an easy one, right? They looked at Deuteronomy, where the law was given and God said, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity upon the third and the fourth generation. So they believed in generational sins. So, so their worldview is someone had to sin. Now, there's a kernel of truth there. Sin has caused all disformity and suffering, all of it, in general, but not in particular. So they have a kernel of truth, but what they're driving at is wrong. Um, this is what Job's friends believed, right? Right? You know the story of Job, he loses everything, loses his business, his kids. I mean, even his wife says, curse God and die, and it's a horrific situation. And his friends, for seven days, just sit there and say nothing. Great move. The minute they open their mouth, everything goes wrong, right? Job, come clean, you had to sin. This could never happen to anybody. Come on, Job, come out of the closet. Job, what did you do? This is what I call Christian karma, okay? That we must have sinned. You know what Jesus' answer is? Neither. Neither this man or his parents sinned. What Jesus was saying is, you guys can't put the dots together like that. You can't connect all these dots. It's way above our understanding right now. I think in the ages to come, you know, some of this will make sense. In many ways, what Jesus was saying is, look, my mission, and the reason I've come, is not to solve or to give you a dissertation on the mystery of evil, but I've come to remove the cause of it. Jesus had come to bring the kingdom of God. When he read in the synagogue that day, the book, the scroll of Isaiah, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to open blind eyes and deaf ears, to preach the acceptable of the year of the Lord, to let those who are in bondage free. He was the one bringing the kingdom. And so what we would see all around Jesus is the kingdom moving forward. We have about 24 personal healings in the scripture. But then we have times where Jesus walked into a town and it says he healed them all. And what he was showing is what the kingdom would look like. And the book of Revelation says when there's a new heaven and a new earth, all the former things will have passed away and there will be healing for the nations. And Jesus was showing us this. There's not a pastor in America in a pulpit today that will not weave Kobe Bryant's death into his message. And we should because it's a wake-up call for everyone. Ironically, I heard about Kobe's death in a Barnes & Noble after our men's retreat last week. More ironic is the message that we heard on Sunday morning was from Chad Williams, a Navy SEAL. Chad talked about how his life was kind of at a dead end. He decided to be a Navy SEAL. His dad hired him, a man who became his mentor, and he achieved something very few people achieve, Out of 176 people in his class, only 13 men become Navy SEALs, and he became one of them. And then he shared how that mentor at 30 years old died in Iraq. And his closing remarks at that retreat are, life is short, life is fragile, God has given us breath in our lungs, and what we talked about all January, that we should redeem the time, the days are evil. Two hours later, I'm sitting in a Barnes & Noble. Someone with everything, 41 years old, nine people, dead. And of course, what happens is why? Why Kobe Bryant? Uh, Why a Navy SEAL is 30 years old? Why is somebody taking the prime of their life? This isn't 80 or 90-year-olds, people that are sick. These are people right in the prime of life. The why questions. Why does this happen? Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? One of the things we can't do is give simple answers as Christians. We can't give simple answers like, well, this was God's will. I hear people say that all the time. I remember the story of a pastor whose son died young, and that night people were coming over and they were bringing dishes of food and they would walk in and say, Pastor, it was the Lord's will that your son died. And finally, after the 30th person said that, he banged his fist on the table and he said, you think it was the Lord's will? You think it was the Lord's will when my son had too much to drink? You think it was the Lord's will when his windshield wiper didn't work? You think it was the Lord's will when there was a faulty guardrail? And he looked at everybody in that room and he said, when my son's car crashed into that river, God was the first to shed a tear. But the idea that we could ever understand these things is so far beneath us. We see through a glass dimly. We're going to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and we're going to see God weeping that we would ever die. God weeping that we would ever experience pain. God weeping that we would ever go through these things. Jesus makes it clear we can't put these things together. And one of the clearest places in all the gospel where where he kind of opens this up is Luke 13, 4, where Jesus comments on a current event, which was very rare in his ministry, he said, those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, he said, do you think they were worse sinners than all who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. And unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And the reason Jesus said that is because when the tower of Siloam killed and killed 18 people, probably the most common response was, they must have really had it coming to them. Kind of like 9 9-11 when two towers fell and 3,000 people died and Christian leaders got up and said, it's because of abortion, God's judging America. Jesus said, you can't do that. Judgment is God's strange work. We don't understand it. You can't do that. It's not that simple. And so he makes it very clear, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the glory of God might be revealed. He healed the man. Now, I don't want to get into the Greek on Sunday morning. It's complex. Let me say this. In the Greek, there's no punctuation, and you can find a Greek scholar who can read this one way or the other. You can find a Greek scholar who will tell you, for the glory of God, this man was healed, which leads people to say, well, this man was born blind, so Jesus could come and heal them. I disagree with that. And the reason I can disagree with it is I can find all the other Greek scholars who say that's another way to interpret it. Every Greek scholar worth his salt that I have read says it can be read either way. When it can be read either way, you have to go with the totality of Scripture. And I think the totality of Scripture says we will never understand pain and suffering. The one thing we do understand is we have a God who suffered. And we also understand that God is working all things for the good, right? Romans 8. In other words, God doesn't waste suffering. It's not by chance. Now, it's not, he didn't cause it. That's the whole book of Job. But he doesn't waste it. So this past week was the 75th anniversary of the Holocaust. If you've never read anything about the Holocaust, you probably should. It is one of the most amazing feats of evil. 75 years ago, an industrialized nation put Jewish people who were flourishing and thriving in ovens. And whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, you must believe in evil. Morality must drive you somewhere. Why is there evil? We're 75 years removed. And people will say, well, why did God allow a holocaust? There must be no God. Oh, we have no idea. We know this. There'd be no nation of Israel without a holocaust. And you think about all the Jews and migrate it back and what that nation has become and and Jesus is going to return there and and you begin to understand a little bit of, of, of how God has brought some sense out of that suffering. But we'll never understand. Now, the method of the healing is somewhat interesting, right? Sometimes Jesus says, be healed. And by the way, it's never abracadabra, right? It's never like, voila, you're healed, right? It's just a, It's just he says the word. Like the water turned the wine. He never did anything. Uh, This time, he makes a mud pie. And he makes the guy walk to the pool of Siloam. And some people say, well, he made the guy walk because then the guy had faith. I don't believe that. Um, I think he made the mud pie to ruffle the feathers of the religious establishment. Because by making that mud, as ridiculous as it sounds, he was working on the Sabbath. And they couldn't comprehend, even though someone was transformed before their eyes, that was the purpose of religion, that this guy could break one of their rules. He could not be from God. Um, The the miracle is astounding. Uh, Jesus healed about 24 individuals outside of healing everyone. The most profound we're going to look at in two weeks, raising the dead. Blindness, he healed blindness four times. Healing blind eyes, probably at the top of the ladder. Uh, the Pharisees here in verse 32, in their own words, say, it has never been said since the world began that anyone opened the eyes of the blind. I chuckle when people say, oh, yeah, back then, you know, everybody got raised from dead. Every, everybody was healed of blind. No, those people weren't stupid. They built the pyramids and the Parthenon and, you know, invented algebra. And, like, come on. No one has ever been blind. And now they could see. And the reason blindness is at the top of the list is how complex the human eye is. The Victorians believed, and they didn't have the science we have today, that the eye was so complex that you'd have to believe in God just because of the eye. Darwin said if anything could undo his theory of natural selection, it would be the complexity of the eye. And, and the eye is very complex. It's made of rods and cones, which helps you and me distinguish, listen to this, between two and seven million hues of color. If you put your thumb out and about 18 inches from your eyes and look at it, that's the best focus you'll ever get, and you can still see a periphery of things. In reality, however, you're not seeing that periphery. What's happening is your eye is darting about four times every second, all through the day, millions of times over a course of life. And what's happening when you focus on your thumb, your brain is filling in the rest of the picture. It's astounding. It takes a third of your cerebral cortex just to see. And that's, we're talking one eye, now you get into two eyes, it gets even more complex. And then there's the lubricant of the eye, tears. Without that lubricant, your eye would stick to your eyelids. How bad would that be? All the irritants like smoke and pollen and those things would bother us. So it keeps the eye lubricated, and then here's something else science doesn't understand. Emotional tears. Nothing on the planet cries when they're sad and happy except human beings. And of course, we know God has our tears in a bottle. Probably the most profound thing about sight is we don't see it all. When you go out today and look at trees and the sunset and, you know, nature and the Super Bowl, you're really not seeing. Sorry about that. Your eye is a radio receiver. It's receiving radio waves, and then your brain, it's throwing things up on a screen that your brain has coded. That's why a baby blinks, because everything's new to them, and the brain is coding all these pictures. Again, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. So when Jesus heals this guy, was it a process? Like, was everything coded right away? Uh, How did it happen? It's fascinating if you really get into it. But the one thing we know is this guy was blind, but now he can see. Now, here's the truth of the matter. It's wonderful if we could heal blind eyes, isn't it? But you know what's true? You can heal this man's blindness and not solve his problems. You can heal this man's blindness and guess what? He's gonna die eventually. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but guess what happened to Lazarus? He died again, right? We can heal the world of cancer. But we're all moving to that place. The wages of sin is producing death in us. The ultimate transformation of this man was not physically. That's to draw our attention. But it was spiritually. And we see the progression here when they come to him and say, who healed you? In verse 11, he said, a man called Jesus. A lot of people have that testimony today. Yeah, Jesus, is my man. Oh, I know Jesus. He's one of the greatest guys that ever lived. He said, "Turn the other cheek." And then they kind of badger him a little, and he goes on, and he said, uh, "Verse 17, he's a prophet." Remember, this guy doesn't know anything. He's a religious leader. A lot of people know that about Jesus. But the ultimate transformation comes in verse 35 when Jesus finds the man. He's been cast out of the temple. And Jesus finds him and says, uh, do you believe in the Son of God? The man said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? Jesus said, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. He says three words, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And that's all it takes. This man never gave him an offering. was never baptized. N- Never did all the things we think of tied in the religion. He said, Lord, I believe. And that was enough. And he begins to worship him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, overheard these words and said, Are we blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, and therefore your sin remains. Everyone who's ever been born was born blind. And I don't mean physically. Everyone who's ever been born was born spiritually blind. Everyone who has ever been born was born into a system. And so I was born into a system. people in India are born into a system. They're told to wash in the Ganges River. Muslims go to Mecca. They read the Quran. You know, everybody's born in a system. Some people are raised to read the Bible and go to church. Everybody's born into something. We are all born blind. And the Bible teaches there comes a day where God interacts in your life, where there's an experience where the, then we choose. We're born one way, we choose our faith. And this day for this man was a day where he was just begging. It was like any other day, and God came into his world, and he was left with a choice. And he begins with this idea that Jesus was a man, and it goes to a prophet, and now he's Lord. And it happens to every one of us, and it happens different ways. For me on a college campus, for some people it's in a car, or watching TV, or a friend comes to their home. Some way, somehow God enters your world. And Jesus said it here, that if God didn't enter your world, there would be no such thing as sin. God has to reveal himself. But once he reveals himself, the choice is yours. Now, this man has a profound experience. I was blind, and now I see. And what happened? Religion excommunicated him. You know, when he was blind, religion accepted him. Religion couldn't do anything with him. But now that he could see, he's excommunicated. This happened to me, by the way. Maybe it happened to you. So I get radically saved on a college campus. I'm reading the Bible. I'm all fired up. Spring break comes. I come home to my local church, and I make an appointment with a minister. I'm really excited. I'm going to tell him how my life has changed, and man, I read the Bible now, and I'm excited for God. And he said, uh, I saw you in communion today. I said, yeah, man, I'm really excited. I'm on fire. He goes, yeah, but did you go to communion before, did you go to confession before you went to communion? I'm like, "Uh, no. He said, well, that's a sin. And I had read enough of the Bible where I knew this verse in 1 John that if you confess your sins to God, he's faithful and just, and there's no mediator between God and man. Like, just in your room, you can confess your sins to God. So I kind of, I was proud of myself. I actually quoted my first verse to somebody And he got out this dusty book, and he said, no, 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 And he begins to read me church law. And that's when I knew this was it, that I was excommunicated by religion and that God would have me on a new journey. John writes this story to tell us that it wasn't really the man who was blind. Judaism was blind. To the people that were chosen, that were given the oracles and the covenants of God, to the people that were you know, the apple of God's eye who had everything, they had become spiritually blind. Blinded by tradition, blinded by greed, blinded by money, blinded by status, blinded by power. You know what's tragic about this? Jesus said if the blind follow the blind, they both fall in the ditch. It's sad. The blind follow the blind, they both fall in the ditch. John tells this story to say, you know, this was a day where a man got excommunicated by religion, but also a day where a man excommunicated religion, traded it in for relationship with the Savior, and I'm sure grew by leaps and bounds. We were all born blind. We were all on the road that leads to destruction. The Bible says when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I look at Paul. Paul. This experience he has where on the Damascus Road, the scales fall from his eyes. Just another beautiful picture. This Pharisee of the Pharisees, this stellar religious resume, he says, I now trash it all for the excellency to know Jesus Christ, to move in this relationship with him. Historical, metaphorical, it's all through the scriptures. that we have to trade in religion for relationship. Jesus was the way to God, the truth of God. He's the life of God. You know what's funny? You know, I had this profound experience with God. And now I have all the knowledge. There's not a human being on the planet, there's not an event that can happen on this planet where you could ever talk me out of my faith. I've seen a lot of bad things. I stood around a lot of grave sites. And you'll never talk me out of it. Because not only do I believe, not only is it by faith, you know, I had a profound experience with the Holy Spirit. And I agree with Paul said, Paul said, you know, God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's the down payment of our inheritance. For 37 years, I've heard the Spirit, I've walked in the Spirit, I've lived a life in the Spirit, and and what I am so amazed by is what I've seen. For 37 years, I have seen the kingdom of God. I've seen God's people. I've learned the Bible, which was new to me. This whole subculture, I would have never seen. I would have never seen the kingdom. And I am so thankful to God, and I'm so thankful to God that, that as I grow older and my appointment with destiny gets closer, that these things become richer and purer, And I can see through the neon lights of the world. You know, I look at ambition and power and money, and I see right through it. And I'm not saying that there's sins don't ensnare me and the temptations of the world, but but I can see through them. I was sitting in that Barnes & Noble, and I was thinking about how Kobe's death is a wake-up call to so many. And then I was thinking about you and I don't need wake-up calls. Because we have this wonderful mechanism called the church where every week we come and you know we hear from God and we have this feedback and we talk about things and we share life together and we know this is the truth about life. We know life is fragile. We know it's short. We don't have all the answers to the why questions. But there's a God that we trust and that we can leave it to him. Thomas Aquinas, who swims in the very deep end of the pool. So if you don't get this, don't worry about it said, love is born of an earnest consideration of the object loved. Love follows knowledge. Love is an emotional response aroused in the will by visions of the good. Contrary to what is often said, love is never blind, though it may not see rightly, and it cannot exist without some vision of the beloved. Some vision of the beloved. There's something about God that drew us. There's something about Jesus that we love. Love has something it's enamored with. And you know, probably deeper than our desire to be loved is our desire to love. It's unbelievable. There, there, there's this tremendous desire to be loved, we all have it, but there's probably a greater desire to love, to show our affection towards someone else or towards God, because that's the way we remain. And again, life goes sideways when that love goes in all other directions. Two things will mask your need for the love of God. One, a relationship. And two, having a child. People that get married or find someone they're dating, you know, all of a sudden we don't need God because now I have someone, but that wanes. Then you get mask it with children. That's why when children leave, people fall apart. The love of God. The love for God, it's got to be at the top of the list. So back to Barnes & Noble. I go there after the retreat, and I'm walking around, looking for a couple books to read, and I see a book called Transform. There's a black man on the cover. His name is Remy Adelke, and I read the subtitle, A Navy Seal's Unlikely Journey from the Throne of Africa to the Streets of the Bronx to Defying All Odds. And when I see that, I think, that's code for this dude got saved. I'm like, what's God doing? Saving all these Navy SEALs? Like, come on. So I paced through the book, and yeah, that's what happened. There's a chapter called The Ultimate Transformation. This is a guy who was living a horrific lifestyle. Long story short, people get involved with his life, bring him to church. He says that prayer, Lord, I believe one day. And he said, I'd be lying if I felt electricity surge up and down my body, Or if I fell on the floor to convulsions, that experience wasn't that way. That never happened, but what did happen is I had an instant peace, a peace that softly spoke these words, you're forgiven, everything will be okay. In the four month period after I committed my life to Jesus, my faith grew exponentially. It was like I had been placed on a rocket ship and shot into a new dimension. Day after day I would experience miraculous events, I began to feel God's presence. I began to encounter him in a tangible way, and I had so many dramatic encounters with God. That's all I wanted to do. His life verse became, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things are new. I confessed to my mom about things I'd done, my girlfriend about things I'd done, my language changed, my view of people changed, my view of politics changed. More miraculously, after 12 years of watching pornography and having sex, I completely gave it up and became celibate. Talk about a miracle. It was a transformative time in my life that I will never forget. When he went back to his platoon, they said, Remy, are you okay? Why are you going to church? Why aren't you going to clubs? And I talked to them about the miraculous transformation in my life. Remy's still going to experience pain and suffering. It's part of our lot in this life. And by the way, it always amazes me when this question comes up. Why, why, why? Because it never comes up the other way. You know, you're never sitting by a pool in Jamaica, and you sit there and say, why is it so good right now? Did you ever eat a sandwich? Sandwiches are meat. Do you ever bite into a sandwich and say, my gosh, God, why are you so good? We all came into this world. We have no idea why we came and how we came in. God created us. And we think there's like this constitution that God owes us 24-7, all of our life of bliss. Like we created the rules of the game. Like it's owed. And if the wages of sin really is death, then we should suffer all day really, for what we've done. The Bible over and over talks about the goodness of God. He's working all things for our good and His purpose in this life. The ultimate transformation is not to walk through the hospital corridors and heal everyone because they would eventually die. Jesus came to deal with the cause of death. And he raised Lazarus to prove it, and then he rose again to prove it. The ultimate transformation is in a human heart and a soul. what it's all about, to see where we're going, to understand where we came from, to see is the greatest thing. And all you got to say is, Lord, I believe. There's a transformation from the inside out. It goes from your head to your heart. And God gives you this sixth sense of seeing with spiritual eyes and hearing with spiritual ears. It's the greatest life there ever is. If you've never done that, Lord, I believe there's counselors, there's pastors here. For those who have done it, You know, my prayer is, God, I want to constantly see. Because, like like an iceberg, there's a lot below the iceberg. There's a lot we can't see. Uh, One last thing about the eye, just so something was worth you coming out. Uh, If you take that thumb and move it, it'll eventually disappear. It's called a blind spot. Everybody in this room has blind spots. Yeah, Pastor Bob, I know my blind spots. No, you don't. You know your weaknesses. That's why it's called a blind spot. One of our prayers is, Lord, help me deal with these blind spots. Let the Holy Spirit go deep. And, Lord, help me with this. That's why we need community. That's why we need people. We need the Word of God like a mirror. Seeing isn't a one time thing. Our prayer should be every day, Lord, let me see more of your kingdom, more of your glory. Lord, help me with these things that are keeping me back. Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am, the things I do, I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Lord, Help me to see clearly. 2020.